last week we talked about a great storm that, that came, and this week we're going to talk about a great fish, okay? So let's go to Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. From inside the fish, notice it's from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, and he said this, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me, and I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, in other words, to the bottom of the sea, I sank down, and the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life out from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and he vomited Jonah onto dry land. Lord, I pray that you open our eyes to behold wonderful things from this passage. Lord, this is the passage that we all grapple with when we come to the book of Jonah. And I pray today that you reveal to us your heart in this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We have just read a biblical account of an obedient fish that swallowed a disobedient prophet. <laughs> and I like that. And this is, by the way, one of the most difficult passages of the Bible to swallow. Okay, no pun intended. <laughs> now, the question is this, can a fish swallow a grown man? What about if this creature is as big as a whale? Now the whale, as many of us know, is a mammal, right? It breathes through, its, through lungs. It actually breathes through air holes rather than gills. And the species of whale that we all are familiar with, that we catch to get oil, is actually Arctic whales, right? They are way up uh, in the Arctic. But Arctic whales cannot possibly swallow a man. If you go and read it up, you know that Arctic whales cannot possibly swallow a man simply because the throat is too narrow and you can't really swallow a man. Moreover, Arctic whales are not found in the Mediterranean, which is where Jonah is. However, the species of whale that we will find in the Mediterranean is the sperm whale. Sperm whales can actually grow up to the length of 18 meters. Uh, I, I tried to do some research on this just, just for the fun of it, but I discovered some interesting things. Sperm whales can actually grow up to 18 meters, and the throat of a sperm whale is much bigger than an Arctic whale, and it can possibly swallow a man. And interestingly, the sperm whale 
has this habit, you know, it dives into great depths in the ocean up to a thousand meters in search of food. And the eating habit of the sperm whale is that it will swallow everything from water and, and food together. And then it will throw out the water, keep the food, throw out the water. And the throat of the, the sperm whale is actually big enough to swallow a man. But the problem is this, the stomach is too small to contain a man. But the interesting thing is also, between the stomach and the throat, there is a pouch. Uh, this pouch is where the, the, the whale will actually store the food that is too big to digest. They store it in this pouch. And interestingly, this pouch is where you find the air hole. You've seen whales, right? And they blow out air and, and water. And that's where the pouch is. And this pouch serves to hold a food that's too big. It's kind of like a halfway house. You know? So whatever the whale swallow, he puts it into the pouch. And then after that, it goes into the stomach. It's a kind of a halfway house. And this pouch is where the air holes of the whale is situated. And interestingly, every time a whale takes in a breath, it can take up to 2,000 liters of air. And a sperm whale can actually take one breath and then hold it for about 75 minutes each time. Now, you think about that, you put all that together, and then we can see that it is actually possible for a man to survive within the sperm, sperm whale for some time. And therefore, in theory, if the great fish of the book of Jonah is a sperm whale, then it is physically possible for the story of Jonah to be a factual account, like we said uh, in our Facebook post. Now, the question is this, has it ever happened in history? And interestingly, I, I researched it and I found that at least there was one recorded incident of a man who survived in a whale. And that's found in 1927. There was a sailor from the Falkland Islands that was swallowed by a sperm whale. He ended up in the pouch and he survived. However, when he came out, some parts of his skin was actually bleached because of the gastric juices of the, of the, the fish. So he became more white than ever. <laughs> but my point is this. Right? Now, listen carefully. I tell you all that. There are fun facts, and it's interesting. And it makes it possible for it to be a physical reality. However, my main point is this. Listen carefully. All this is interesting, and it, is, it makes sense. But the bottom line is that this is a miracle of God. And because it's a miracle of God, we don't actually need to justify it naturally because it's supernatural. How many of you agree? But it's great to know that it makes sense. <laughs> but what then is the miracle in this book? What's the real miracle? As I reflected on it, what's the real miracle in this incident? I think the miracle is not that a whale swallowed Jonah, but that God caused it to happen at the right place, at the right time, to the right person. How many of you know, that's providence. Are you with me? Yeah, the very fact that God is the one who sent a big fish and swallowed up just Jonah. At the right place, at the right time, verse 17 of chapter 1 says, but the Lord provided a fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. By the way, that word provide is used three other times in chapter 4, verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8. And this word provide is a key word 
because it tells us that our God is sovereign, that we serve a sovereign God who has ultimate control over the events of life. And it did not happen by chance. It happened by the choice of God. How many of you can say amen to that? And that, to me, is the miracle. So what did the Bible actually say? So if we look at chapter 2 now, and from verse 2 onwards, we actually read an amazing prayer that the prophet Jonah prayed. If you look at um, chapter 2, actually there's a lot of quotation marks everywhere. And the reason is because it was actually a very amazing prayer that the prophet prayed while he was inside the fish. And when you read that prayer carefully, you will notice that it's a collection of 11 different psalms stringed together. They're a collection of 11 different psalms. And I think that's amazing. Can you imagine you are in the the belly of the whale, and then you start to pray, and you had such an amazing prayer. It's so word-based, it has 11 psalms quoted in one prayer. And the following psalms were actually referred to in this prayer. And I'll tell you what they are so that you, you can go and read it for yourself later on. Verse 2, right, of, of chapter, chapter 2, verse 2, is actually a combination of Psalms 18, 6, Psalms 120, verse 1. Verse 3, it's actually Psalms 88, 6, and Psalms 42, 7. Verse 4 is Psalms 31, verse 22. Verse 5, Psalms 69, verse 1 and 2. Verse 7 is Psalms 77, verse 11 and 12. Verse 7, Psalms 11, 4, and Psalms 18, 6. Then verse 8 is Psalms 50, verse 14, verse 23, verse 9, Psalms 3, verse 8. No, what's my point? My point is that in one prayer, he prayed, so many scriptures. Hello? Do you think that's amazing? I mean, the guy, the guy was in the belly of the whale. He started praying. This is what he prayed. And because of this, the whole prayer appears to be orchestrated. And that is why some scholars actually have proposed that it was not a prayer prayed at the time, but a prayer that written after that time because it, 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 it's easier for them to, to accept that. But have you ever noticed this, that if you are saturated with the Word of God, if you are someone who has been saturated with God's Word, during a time of crisis, the Holy Spirit can quicken Scriptures to your mind. And then you find yourself praying the Word. Have you ever experienced that? You're going through some really tough time and then you begin to cry out to God and the words that you have read, the scriptures that you have memorized, they all come back. And then you begin to pray the word of God. And I have a feeling that Jonah was doing that because Jonah was someone who loved to go and worship in the temple with the people of Israel. He loves the word of God. Scriptures were so much a part of his life. The Psalms, by the way, is the prayer book of the Jewish people. That from a very young age, every Jewish kid is trained to sing the Psalms, to pray the Psalms, to memorize the Psalms. So it's not surprising if all these scriptures come back to Jonah. And in the belly of the fish, it begins to come out. In his time of desperation, the word of the Lord begins to flow out of its innermost being. And you notice, the entire prayer was recorded in the past tense. In other words, after Jonah had been through that whole experience inside the whale of the fish, when he came out, he wrote this and he put it all in the past tense. He was reliving the entire experience. So how then should we see this prayer? Now, when you read that prayer, 
you've got to have one perspective, and the perspective is this. Jonah was saved not from the whale. Uh, the Jonah was saved not when he got out of the whale, but it's when he went in. Okay, let me say it one more time. Huh? A lot of times we think that, oh, when Jonah got swallowed by the, the fish, we all think now he's in deep trouble. But actually, I think Jonah was saved not when he got out of the whale, when the whale vomited him onto dry land, but when he went in. I'll tell you why. The Lord provided Jonah the fish not to kill him, but to save him. I say one more time, okay? You didn't get that. Jonah provided that whale not to harm, uh, God provided Jonah the whale not to harm him, but actually to save him. Jonah, he was saved not from the whale, but he was saved by the whale. Jonah was saved not from the whale, but he was saved from drowning. Remember when the sailors threw him into the sea last week? I think Jonah was probably drowning. Like he must have expected to die. And then the Lord in his mercy provided a fish to actually save him. Now, let's read the prayer again from the perspective of a drowning man. Okay, now I want you to think about it as a drowning person. And let me read that passage for you one more time, okay? Now you, you think about it as someone about to drown and someone who is dying and drowning. And then you read the passage, it all makes sense. Okay, let me read for you one more time, right? Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. Remember, this guy is drowning. From inside the whale, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And then he said this. This was what happened. In my distress, I cried to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. And then he says, you hurled me into the depths. Number three, throw me into the sea and the currents swirled about me. That makes sense, right? All your waves and breakers swept over me. And then I said, I've been banished from your sight. In other words, I'm about to die. And yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. That means ah, I'm choking. Okay, the, and, and to the roots of the mountain, I sank down. The guy was sinking to the bottom. Where is the root of the mountain? It's a seabed. He was going all the way down and then he says, The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you... Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, in other words, I'm drowning, I remembered you and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Does that make sense? That guy was drowning and God provided a fish to actually save him. And that was what's happening. Notice that in this, prayer, this prayer was prayed from inside the fish. The inside of the fish was like Jonah's tomb. But because of prayer, it was transformed into a womb that gave him new life. And at that point, I could imagine all of Jonah's senses must be telling him, I'm about to die. I'm in the jaws of death. But his faith began, when he ended up in the pouch of the whale, I think he suddenly, his faith came back and he began to look up to his Redeemer and he cried out to God in his spirit. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me. From the depths of the grave, from Sheol, I cried, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Hallelujah. Jonah 
as Jonah was nearing death, as he was about to drown, two things closest to his heart came to his mind. And the two things are this. Number one was his God. I remembered the Lord. In verse 7, it says, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. That's one thing closest to his heart. The second was the temper. You look at verse 4. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temper. Oh, these two things closest to his heart came out when he was about to die. I don't know about you, I've seen people die or nearing their deathbed. You know, and as a pastor, I get the, I get the privilege of seeing, praying for people sometimes just before they passed on. And then to hear them share the things that's on their heart. And I'll tell you one thing I've discovered. When people are near death, they never talk about their business. <laughs> they never talk about how much they have in their bank account. They never talk about their careers. They don't talk about, you know, their houses, their cars, their, all these things. They don't talk about that. You know what they talk about? They talk about their friends. They talk about their family. They talk about the regrets they have in their life. They talk about the, the wonderful things that they have experienced in their life. And somehow, when you are near to death, the things that are most important to you will really come to mind. And for Jonah, it was the Lord and the temple. And as his thoughts uh, moved towards God and the temple, it became prayer. And then he began to cry out to God. And that's why in verse 7, it says, My prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Now this morning, with this as a backdrop, I want to give you a few practical lessons from this dying prophet. Number one was this. That at the point of his death, near death, Jonah recognized the God who is sovereign. It's the first thing he did. He recognized the God of sovereignty. You look at verse 3, Jonah said this, You hurled me into the deep. Jonah acknowledged that it was the hand of God behind this whole situation. Throughout this entire tragedy that he was in, the prophet retained his faith in his sovereign God. See, never once did he blame the sailors for throwing him in. Never once did he blame the seas. He recognized that they were just instruments in the hands of a mighty God. This was an act of God. It wasn't just an act of man. And he accepted his own responsibility in this whole matter. See, one of the marks of greatness is the ability to accept responsibility when things go wrong in our life. I, I once read this cartoon, you know, where one guy was having a conversation with the other and the first guy said to the other, everybody thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. And it's true. Everybody wants to change the world, but we must start by changing ourselves. And Jonah recognized that his being in this storm and inside the whale is part of the redemptive plan of God. That God allowed him to be in this situation so that his heart can be calibrated back to God. In Job chapter 36, verse 15, Job said this, God delivers the afflicted by their affliction. In other words, God delivers the afflicted by their affliction and open their years by adversity. There are some lessons in life that you and I can never learn except through pain. That until we go through a crisis, we cannot see who Christ really is. See, and Jonah, through it all, recognized the God of sovereignty. 
Here's number two. Jonah exercised faith in the God of mercy. He recognized that God is not only sovereign, but God is also merciful. Not just sovereign, but merciful. In verse 4, listen to what he says here. I have been banished from your side, yet I will look again to your holy temple. I think this verse can be better understood if the quotation marks given in the NIV can be reviewed a little bit. Because uh, the quote actually goes from, I have been banished from your side, yet I will look again to your holy temple. Close inverted comma, right? But actually, if you go read the original uh, psalm that, that, that Jonah quoted from, only the first part is from the psalm. I have been banished from your side. Close quotation. Yet I will look again to your holy temple. So what's he saying? What he's saying is that even as he was drowning, he felt that he has been permanently cut off from God. You see, how many of you know when you are drowning and you're dying, you thought that I'm going to be banished from God's sight forever, right? I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to be dying. But, the, but the, the irony is this, you know, he was saying that God, you have, uh, I have been banished from your sight. But the truth is this, uh, the irony is that he, the whole time, Jonah was actually trying to cut himself off from God, right? He was escaping the touches for what? To run away from God running as far away from the temple as possible. He's running away from God. And now, he actually are tasting it, that he's about to be really cut off from God. And that's when he realized, oh, this is not good. And then he says, Lord, you have banished me from your sight. But by faith, he said, yet I will look again to your holy temple. His faith returned. And he says, yet I'm going to look again to your holy temple. Why? Because he recognized that God is not only sovereign, God is also merciful and gracious. And he served a God of great mercy and grace. Jonah was recognizing afresh that God loves him even when he's rebelling against God. How many of you know that? That even when we are rebelling against God, God's love never changed. I like this Sunday school song, you know. Jesus loves me when I'm good. When I do the things I should, Jesus loves me when I'm bad, though it makes him very sad. <laughs> I like that. Do you got that? <laughs> I think it's true. You know, do you realize that when we rebel against God, when we go against God, it really makes him sad? Then that's the point. It's not, it's not that he's angry now and he wants to slap you. No, it makes him really saddened that we would actually do that. And he appeals to us. He, by his grace, he reaches out to us and said, don't, come back. See, mercy is when God withholds from us what we deserve. And how many of you agree? Jonah deserved to die for his disobedience. But God provided a way out, provided him a fish and saved him. Grace is when God gives us what we do not deserve. Jonah did not deserve to be rescued, but God provided an obedient fish. In the same way, you and I, you know, we are also recipients of God's grace and mercy. And the best response we can make to a God like this, a God so sovereign, a God so merciful, so gracious, the best thing we can do, do the same for others. 
The same way we have been forgiven, we forgive others. The same way we are loved, we love others. The same way God extends mercy and grace to us, we extend grace and mercy to others. How many of you will say amen to that? I think so. Jonah recognized he's a God of a sovereign. He, he recognized he's a God who is merciful. And here's the third thing. Jonah acknowledged he's the God of salvation. Look at verse 6 now. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. This guy was really drowning. He's about to really hit the bottom. He says he's beginning to squeeze in now. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. I don't know if you ever noticed this as you read the book of Jonah. There was a three-step downward movement in Jonah's life ever since he started disobeying God and running away to Tashish, right? He has been going down, right? Firstly, he went down to Joppa, where he caught the star cruise to Tashish. Then he went down into the ship, right? And he was sleeping below deck. Then now he's going down into the sea. It is down, down, down. Brothers and sisters, when we run away from God's will, the only way left for us is down. Down, down, down. There is only one way we can reverse that trend, and that is this, divine intervention. Only by divine intervention can we turn it around. He says, I have the roots of the mountain, I sank down. But then he said, but you brought me up, brought my life up from the pit. Oh Lord, my God. It was divine intervention that actually pulled him up. And pray. Only God, my brothers and sisters, can turn our lives around. Only He can bring us up again. We can only pray and turn back the way that we have come. Repent and then we can reverse that downward trend. And this is what Jonah did. So if you look at verse 7, he says, when my life was ebbing away, that's the turning point. I remembered you, my Lord, and my prayer rose to you to your holy temper. At the lowest point of his life, Jonah remembered the Lord and he prayed. And I want you to know that Jonah knows how to pray because he has been doing this all his life in the temple in Jerusalem. And he called upon the grace and mercy of God at his greatest point of need. And then he said this in verse 8, and that's where his repentance began to come. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. You know the words worthless idols? It actually means vain, empty vanities. It does not necessarily mean that it is a religious image or physical idol. You know, it is vain, empty vanities. It can be anything that seeks to be a substitute for God in our life, including ambition, greed, pride, pleasures, comforts, etc. And you notice that the prophet was praising God from inside the fish before he was even delivered. He was still in the fish when he prayed all these things. He was claiming the promises of God for his covenant people by faith. At the same time, he also renewed his covenant with his Lord. Okay, he repented and he said, no point holding on to all these vain vanities. And then in verse 8, he says, what I have vowed, I will make 
good. He was renewing his vow to obey God's command as a prophet. He was returning to the promise he made to his God when he was called as a prophet you know, to, to, for Israel. He was renewing now, renewing his covenant with his God. And that is why he did not hesitate the next time God called him to Nineveh in the next chapter. And he finally acknowledged this, which is a very key thing. He finally acknowledged that salvation comes from the Lord and none other. And this verse is very critical because it can also be translated as this, salvation belongs to the Lord. And therefore, God is free to give salvation to whoever He chooses, including the Ninevites, people who don't deserve it. And finally, Jonah acknowledged that. He finally acknowledged that God is the one who delivered him from his, drown, his near death, even though he was disobedient. God chose to deliver him. So in the same way, God has the right to offer salvation even to the evil Ninevites. It was a turning point for him. Are you with me? It was a turning point for him. He said, if God can save me, who is a rebellious prophet, God can also save the Ninevites because salvation comes from the Lord. You know, every single one of us here, we all have our biases. We all have our prejudice. We all think that some people are not deserving of anything. But it is important to realize salvation comes from the Lord. Our God's capacity, you know, to forgive far outweighs our capacity for failure. It's an amazing God that we serve. And Jonah finally come to this place where he was willing to acknowledge if God can save me and offer me salvation, I suppose God can give it to the Ninevites. So he said, I renew my vow. I'll go where you want me to go, do what you want me to do. So let me, let me take all that and wrap it up for you. Here is a man who turned back to God at the worst of times, right? He's nearly dead or could even have died and be revived. We, we don't know. Different thoughts about this. But he recognized that it was God who was engineering the whole situation to get his attention. But as I read this, right, you know the thing that struck me most is this. The question is this. Does God really need to go through all this? Does God really need to go and provide a great fish, you know, and, and, and save him and all of that? How many of you know God could very easily send another prophet to Nineveh? There's so many prophets in Israel. God could have just, forget about this guy since he's so rebellious. I'll send another one and still get the, the matter resolved. He could very easily have sent another prophet for Nineveh. So the point I want to make is this. God not only loved the city of Nineveh, but I think he also loved his prophet. Don't miss this. I think God did not just love the city of Nineveh and the Ninevites, but God also loved his disobedient prophet. And you know, what amazed me is how God is so patient with his disobedient servant. Isn't that right? God went through so much, you know, just to make sure that he keeps his, his covenant, just to make sure that that Jonah actually fulfilled his calling and destiny. And that's amazing. If it was some of us, 
we would have sacked that prophet. You know, we would have written him off. After all, he's not performing according to expectation. You know, if it were me, I would say his character is flawed with disobedience, his competence not up to par. I would have passed the word around and make sure that his name will never appear again in the prophetic industry. <laughs> but you know what? We serve a God whose mercy and grace never fails. And I think that, you know, the patience of God, you know, towards his disobedient prophet. Today, we live in a New Testament age of grace. Even more, we should be amazed with the patience of our Heavenly Father towards His wayward sons and daughters. Isn't it ironical that sometimes we can be so patient with our own children, giving them one opportunity after another to change, but we can be so impatient and graceless with others. And sometimes it's the other way around. Some of you are thinking, you know, it's the other way around. We could be so patient and loving towards others, but when it comes to our own loved ones, we are so impatient. Is that true? Have you thought about why is it like that? I tell you, ultimately, it's going to be rooted in this. You know, even though Jonah let God down, God wanted him so much. He performed miracles after miracles to draw him back. In verse 10, and the Lord finally, you know, commanded the fish and he vomited Jonah onto dry land. When I tell you this, when Jonah came back to dry land, things are never the same again. His life, he, he, everything is changed forever. He has become a walking testimony of the grace of God in his life. I think Jonah became a sign that points people towards the patience of God towards his wayward people. And the turning point for Jonah was when he realized afresh who God is. And he surrendered to the sovereignty of God. He recognized that God is merciful and he's a God of salvation. And he, of, he obeyed what God wanted him to do, which was to preach to Nineveh. There's some of us here, God has also called us to answer a call, maybe to full-time ministry, to take up leadership, or to fulfill ministry assignments. Or maybe for some of us, it is simply to lift out our faith wherever we are in an intentional way. I think your breakthrough moment will come when you can say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Just like Jonah. When we come to that place where we can say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Now I ask you to give me five minutes more of your attention. This is my prophetic burden for all of us uh, this morning. It's great to study the book and to know the things that are inside. In every time we study the Word of God, God has a prophetic burden He wants to share with you. And as, as the one who is teaching the Word, I want to share with you my burden from this passage. I think God loved Jonah so much. He did not want Jonah to miss his calling and destiny. But you know what is the key to fulfilling God's call, destiny for your life? I think the key is this. It is not commitment, it is surrender. The key is surrender. To be able to say, not my will, but yours be done. And to mean it from the depths of your heart. I remember reading about a Christian leader 
who once was having a conversation with uh, another church pastor from, from, from Europe. And he asked this European leader uh, a thought-provoking question. And the question he asked was this, why is it that the church in the modern world has lost its power with God and man? And this leader gave this profound answer. He said this, the church in the Western world has lost its power with God because it has substituted commitment for surrender. We substitute commitment for surrender. And when we do that, we lose power with God and man. I think that answer really cuts to the core of the problem because there is a great difference, brothers and sisters, between a surrendered life and just a committed life. Many people are committed. Committed to do this, committed to do that, committed, but we are not surrendered. Now, you may ask, Brother Benny, what's the difference? I'll tell you what the difference is. The committed life emphasizes what we want to do for Christ. But the surrendered life embraces what Christ has done for us. That's the difference between the two. The committed life is me just wanting to commit to do this, to do that. I'm going to serve in holy grounds. Okay, I'm going to be an usher. Great. It's great to have commitment. But I know what God wants more than commitment. It's a surrendered life. A life that will actually embrace what God has already done for me and because of what Christ has done for me, my life belongs to Him. Whatever you want me to do, Lord. It's not just what I want to do because I'm interested in coffee. It's not the point. It's what God wants you to do. The committed life insists on one's ability to perform. The surrendered life knows that we can do nothing apart from Christ. You can do nothing apart from God. The committed life focuses on our doing, what I can do, what I want to do, but the surrendered life centers on our being. Who am I before God? It's my identity before Him. The committed life exhausts our competence. These are my skills and my abilities, my talents, my gifts. Great, but the surrendered life examines our character. It's who I am before God. The committed life emphasizes the outward. The surrendered life em- emphasizes on the inward. The committed life centers on operations and functions, but the surrendered life centers on obedience. I do what God wants me to do. The committed life issues out of good intention. We all have great intentions, but the surrendered life flows out of God's initiative. It is what God is prompting us, challenging us to do. And you know what? A man can be outwardly committed to the work of God, but may still be but we may not be inwardly consecrated you know, to the will of God. I can be outwardly committed to the work of God, but am I inwardly consecrated to the will of God and say, God, not my will, but yours be done. And it's not no matter how successful we may be. It doesn't matter how big our churches are. At the end of the day, how yielded am I to God? And Jonah was committed, man. He was committed to the work of God. That's why he, was, he answered the call to be a prophet. But he was not surrendered to the will of God at this point. See, the difference is when, when it's all about commitment, it's still ultimately about what I want to commit to, isn't it? Hello? 
If it's all centered about on commitment, ultimately it's still me. It's still what I'm committed to do. Oh, I'm not willing to do that. I'm willing to do that. It's still my commitment. But when it is surrenderedness, it's no longer about me. It's all about Him. God, what do you want? And sometimes God may say, add this to your plate. Sometimes He says, take this away. And then you're still willing to say, God, not my will, yours be done. And, let the, and when you reach that point, you truly live out Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I that liveth, but it's Christ that liveth in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, not by my own strength. Now, you are truly surrendered. What about you and I today? Are we doing what God really called us to do? Have we drifted, you know, from what God has assigned to us? Have we strayed from that which God has called us to do? Are we still pursuing the passion that God deposited in us? Is the zeal of the Lord still really consuming our hearts? Let me end with this. Many years ago, now it's almost 40 years now, I was still in my 20s. There was a missionary who came to preach in my church that weekend. I don't remember who he was. I cannot remember what he said even. But I only remember one thing. At the end of the service, he challenged us to a life of surrender. And he gave us a challenge. How many of you are willing, really willing to say, God, not my will, but yours be done? That it is a call to be what God wants you to be, to say what God wants you to say, to do what he wants you to do, to be where he wants you to be. And I remember walking up at the end of that service, I came to the altar and I did business with God. And, there was a, and I still remember the song they sang at, the altar, at that altar call. It was a song that says, I surrender all, I surrender all, all to Thee, my blessed Saviour, I surrender all. And it was a turning point in my life. There was a day I answered the call to say, God, whatever you want me to do, here am I sent me and it changed the trajectory of my life forever take me to where I am today it did not start with commitment it started with surrender am I merely committed or am I truly surrendered this could be a turning point for your life let the Lord speak to us this morning